Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com. This is St. Louis on the Air from St. Louis Public Radio. I'm Elaine Cha. When we think of the end of World War II, the image that comes to many minds is the blinding flash of an atomic bomb over the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But at the dawn of 1945, most Americans expected a very different kind of conclusion, one that would involve an invasion of Japan and an indeterminate number of bitter, bloody battles. John McManus has written a trilogy about World War II, and the final volume in that series, To the End of the Earth, the U.S. Army and the Downfall of Japan, 1945, describes the end of that war. Today happens to be the book's release date, and we're happy to welcome the author back to our show to talk with us about this work. John, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, Elaine. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Now, to the extent that people have a memory about the Pacific Asia theater during World War II, they probably know something about the U.S. dropping the atomic bombs in Japan that would end the war, and they likely know something about General Douglas MacArthur. I'd like to start where you do in the book, and that's with General Douglas MacArthur, aboard the USS Boise in the South China Sea on his way to the Philippines. John, give us a sense of what was happening in the Philippines at that time and why MacArthur was going there. Yeah, so for MacArthur, this is like one of the crowning moments of his life. He loved the Philippines and its people. He'd served there for many years uh, on and off throughout his career. His family had ties there. Um, His child had been born there. And, of course, he'd been, you know, famously, along with his army, defeated there in 1942. And uh, and he'd had to leave, and he'd gone to Australia, and he'd kind of, you know, presided over this this sort of major push back. Uh, so 1945 and the, the invasion of Luzon is going to be sort of the, the capstone for him to liberate the archipelago. And for the Philippines, of course, um, it's on the cusp of getting its independence. The U.S. government had promised... Uh, to, to give the Philippines its independence by 1946, and that was a, a sort of a congressional law passed in the early 1930s. Um, <clears throat> so the war had, of course, interceded, and the Japanese had occupied much of the, the country. So um, the Philippines then is going to become a battleground, and I, would, I think it's important to understand, too, the people of the Philippines are going to take a major role in liberating themselves alongside the Americans, and MacArthur is then going to lead this this kind of mass army to come back and and fight this uh, major liberation campaign. Mm -hmm. Now, you have selected a passage to share that comes early in the book. Can you read that for us? Yeah, sure. I think this sort of encapsulates uh, or sets up a lot of what I cover in the book and and really what this this story is about. So uh, beginning at this point where where I write, nearly 1.4 million soldiers were now serving throughout the Pacific and Asia. And by war's end, the number had swelled to 1.8 million. That's the third largest ground force ever sent overseas by the United States to fight a war. Superbly equipped, highly mechanized, well-fed, and well-led, the Army of the Pacific Asia Theater reflected the bounty of the nation that produced it, and it was shouldering the onerous responsibility of expeditionary-style warfare in far-flung, inhospitable locales. Army soldiers were doing the lion's share of the fighting and dying in the Pacific, particularly in the Philippines, 
the true nexus of the American war against Japan. And yet, contemporary and subsequent popular memory tended to focus on the more publicity-savvy and extraordinarily valorous Marines who had carved out a distinguished combat record but were far fewer in number than the soldiers. Even now, in 1945's infancy, the Army labored in an almost unbelievable diversity of missions, combat and non-combat, that included ostensibly everything from the logistics of loading and shipping to guerrilla warfare, from diplomacy to cutting-edge medical care, and from civil affairs engineering of such sophistication as to lay foundations of knowledge to benefit future generations. Spread over nearly one-third of the globe's surface of island, sea, and continent, it was an army of such size and diversity of purpose as to make one unified command nearly impossible. So that's John C. McManus reading from his new book that's out today, To the End of the Earth, the U.S. Army, and the Downfall of Japan, 1945. John is the Curator's Distinguished Professor of U.S. Military History at Missouri S&T. Now, MacArthur believes strongly in defeating Japan, but you write that he, perhaps, felt just as strongly or stronger about liberating the Philippines, and you hinted at his connection with the, the country earlier. Why is that? Yeah, I think in some ways, in MacArthur's mind, uh, it's almost more important to liberate the Philippines and actually go and conquer Japan. Um, and he certainly would have argued that liberating the Philippines was going to bring Japan to its knees on a lot of levels. Mm-hmm. Um, the biggest reason for this, I would say, th- this viewpoint he's got, is his, his sort of long ties with the people of the archipelago. Um, his father had commanded American military forces in the Philippines around the turn of the 19th and 20th centuries at a time when uh, President William McKinley had made the fateful decision uh, to stay in the Philippines as a kind of imperial overseer Mm -hmm. in the wake of the Spanish-American War. Uh, Douglas had served there many years, uh, and he had so many friends there, and he also felt by the time, you know, we're deep into World War II, that the United States had a kind of moral obligation, that these were basically Americans Uh, as he saw Filipinos, who needed to be liberated from a terrible occupation on the part of the Japanese, Mm -hmm. and that uh, our our sort of moral duty commanded it of us. So he saw this as, if if there's a bigger word than crusade, uh, I I would like to use it, because he saw it in that vein. Mm -hmm. And I'd like you to take us to Luzon, and that's the largest and most populous island in the Philippines. It's home to the country's capital, Manila. John, tell us about this time and place during the war. Yeah, so what's happened a couple of months before this, the Americans invaded in the sort of central uh, part of the archipelago, the Philippines, and it's an archipelago of like 7,000 islands. So they invaded at a place called Leyte, and that was supposed to be a precursor to kind of a major capstone operation to liberate uh, Luzon. Uh, so that gets us, you know, deeper into into January 1945, January 9th to be specific, when the Americans finally come back to Luzon itself. It's the largest island. It's got Manila. Um, it's basically populated by the people who dominate much of the Philippines, uh, Tagalog-speaking, mainly Christian um, um, folks who, who had a great deal in common with the Americans. Most of the infrastructure is there. And so... Um, in MacArthur's mind, whoever controlled Luzon controlled the Philippines. Uh, so this invasion that happens on January 9th uh, it includes four divisions of U.S. Army uh, combat soldiers. That is technically more than we put ashore at Normandy on D-Day in 1944. So it tells you something of the size of this, this uh, invasion. 
And why was it that the Philippines was strategically important to the U.S.? Yeah, so this had been really argued in the sort of high policy circles, um, you know, in, in this almost year leading up to the invasion uh, from FDR, um, the, the, the folks who ran the Navy, the folks who ran the Army. I mean, all of this, this argument had been taking place, whether to come back to the Philippines or not, whether it was strategically purposeful. Uh, you know, to, to defeat Japan. And so what MacArthur had argued ultimately successfully is if you took the Philippines, you could sever uh, sea lanes from the Japanese home islands to um, their, their sort of uh, colonies in, um, in what was at the time called Dutch East Indies. Nowadays, that's Indonesia. And the Japanese in the early days of World War II had seized control of these sort of restive Dutch colonies because they were so resource rich. So you could no longer then move the, the oil and the other resources that the Japanese are extracting. You could no longer move them to elsewhere in the Japanese empire, including the home islands, mm-hmm. uh, once the Americans had come back to the Philippines. So that's, in a way, what made it significantly on that level. But also what MacArthur would argue, you know, as I mentioned a moment ago, is that um, the U.S. had a kind of moral obligation to come back and liberate the people. And, and that was, in some ways, what motivated him and some of his soldiers the most. Mm-hmm. Now, in the Philippines, the, the Battle of Manila came shortly after the initial assault on Luzon. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it's one of the great tragedies of World War II. And it really stems from this, this kind of dilemma of whether to uh, come back to the Philippines or not. And you, you see, actually, um, the same kind of dilemmas playing out in Europe. You're having to basically destroy major portions of, of countries you're liberating, France, Belgium, Luxembourg, Holland, all would be examples. The Philippines are the same thing. So when you come back to the Philippines with these invasions, of course, it requires massive military operations. And that, of course, means major firepower. And it means now the uh, the villages, uh, the cities, the homes of people are going to become a battleground. Well, uh, MacArthur, when, when his military forces were defeated in 1941 and 42, he had declared Manila an open city rather than see it become a battleground. Uh, and so Manila had escaped discru- you know, major destruction then. The Japanese did not do that, though General Yamashita, the uh, Japanese commander, will later claim he had no intention of fighting there. Well, what happens instead is he's sort of cut off from, from some other uh, Japanese military forces, particularly of the Navy, uh, that were they were located in Manila and they decided to hunker down and fight. So there's about 17 to 25,000 Japanese soldiers who throughout most of February 1945 and portions of March are just going to fight it out with the Americans, building to building, block to block. And of course, urban combat is among the deadliest, the bloodiest, the most destructive of any kind of fighting that happens in modern war. So it's a profound tragedy that a lot of the city is destroyed. Mm-hmm. Thousands of people are, of course, um, caught in the crossfire, uh, killed by the firepower of both sides. But really, most disturbingly, you see a, a terrible series of, of uh, Japanese atrocities against the locals, probably something on the order of about 100,000 residents of Manila lost their lives in the fighting from one of those reasons. Mm-hmm. How well known is that that story? See, I don't think it's anywhere near as well known as it ought to be because, um, you know, th- this is really the, the sort of <laughs> core of the American war against Japan. Uh, the, about one out of every three of our casualties or more in, uh, in the Pacific Asia in World War II happened in the Philippines. Manila is one of the largest battles um, ever fought in, in modern history, much less uh, American battles. 
Um, it, is, it is something that is so profoundly impactful to the people of the Philippines, um, you know, to this day, that I, I just think there, there's so many lessons to be learned. It's such an incredibly moving and, and really tragic human story. There's also elements of, uh, of, of joy about it on some levels, too, because the majority of the population really was pro-American and really did want the Americans back. Um, and we're helping, you know, directly helping. They're a major reason why the Americans succeed. So you're kind of seeing their post-war future in front of them, too. But you're also seeing the Philippines racked by its own kind of civil war uh, between those who were pro-American and those who were cast their lot with the Japanese. And again, that's very similar uh, to what you were seeing in Europe as well and other places around the globe during World War II. Mm-hmm. This, uh, the focus on people is something that I certainly appreciate. Um, I'm particularly interested, too, in hearing about Lieutenant General Walter Kruger. He played an important part in the war, but there's also a St. Louis connection with him. Who was Walter Kruger? Yeah, fascinating guy. Uh, Walter Kruger was actually born in Germany, uh, but his father had died. His father was a German army officer. His father had died, and his mother had uh, emigrated to the United States with, uh, with Walter when he was, you know, uh, maybe adolescent age. Um, and they came to St. Louis, and they came to St. Louis because uh, I believe it was Walter's uncle, um, or maybe a great uncle, I don't remember which, owned a brewery here in St. Louis in the late 19th century, which of course we all know uh, it was a big part of our economy, and we had a big German-American population. So um, Kruger begins his American journey here in St. Louis. Um, when the Spanish-American War broke out in 1898, he joins the army as a 17-year-old private, and he rises from... A, a humble underage private to ultimately retire as a four-star general, you know, right after World War II. Um, so, and, and so it's what's interesting about him, most of his colleagues, or many, uh, were West Pointers or had college degrees. Um, he not only wasn't a West Pointer, he had no college degree, he had no high school diploma. Hmm. And yet, you know, he gets commissioned from the ranks, actually, while he was serving in the Philippines in the early 20th century. Um, and he is, by 1945, a three-star lieutenant general uh, who is going to command more American ground troops than anybody else in the Pacific War. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he's, personality-wise, he's, uh, he's brusque. He can be rude. He's crusty on some levels. He's, <laughs> he's kind of cautious. Uh, but, but he's also, uh, he, he deeply understands the private soldiers because he was one of them, you know. So he has this humanity about him, too. And he, he's a wonderful husband and father. Um, you know, to, to, his, to his family. Um, and so you kind of see him in these different contexts uh, as really one of the most impactful commanders. And, and MacArthur had handpicked him to command what became Sixth Army, you know, the main uh, the units that, that's going to go into to Luzon. John C. McManus is author of To the End of the Earth, The U.S. Army and the Downfall of Japan, 1945, and the Curator's Distinguished Professor of U.S. Military History at Missouri S&T. There's a book event tomorrow, that's Wednesday evening, where John McManus will talk about his book, which we're discussing now, and it takes place at the Ethical Society of St. Louis on Clayton Road. The event begins at 7 o'clock. John, um, in the Pacific Theater, most of the fighting was done by the U.S. Army, but it's often the Marine Corps that gets most of the attention perhaps because it experienced a larger proportion of deaths. Now, for those who aren't military historians or history buffs, um, that would include me, what was the Marine Corps' role in the Pacific Theater? 
So the Marine Corps does a lot of amphibious operations, uh, you know, invasion of islands. They, they carried out 15 in the course of the war. But I give a sense of proportion in, in this book that uh, uh, Lieutenant General Robert Eichelberger's 8th Army alone in the Philippines in 1945 carried out 35. So it gives you a sense that uh, the Marine Corps is, is incredibly important and kind of punching above its weight. Uh, you know, in terms of valor and importance and all that, but there just aren't very many Marines. There were six divisions of Marines um, mobilized in World War II, and that's the largest the Marine Corps has ever been. The Army had about four times that many. Uh, and so the reason this is important, I think, to understand is not to, to denigrate the Marine Corps, actually quite the opposite. You get mm -hmm. a sense of just how incredible they were, but it also shows you um, <clears throat> that the, the war was much larger than you know assaulting an island or, or who's trading bullets with the enemy at any given time. It's all these other things, like I had mentioned in the in that passage, the medical care, the working with guerrillas, uh, the administration, the logistics, the sustainment, and of course, yes, obviously the mass combat power in all these different amphibious invasions and whatever else that's going on that the army's doing. Um, which I think in turn tells us the real lessons from the war because all this is a, is spectacularly relevant. Um, at a time when there's, of course, great deal of tension with China and and U.S. really has a lot of Indo-Pacific allies, uh, in which so a lot of these same places, including especially the Philippines, uh, emerge as enormously strategically important. So there's a lot of good lessons to learn from what the Army had done in World War II. And mm -hmm. the other thing too, at the human level, uh, you know that that we would think of if we were if we had family members involved, the plurality of the dying in the war in the Pacific is done by the Army. Um, so that's a lot of people. That's 42,000 um, people who, who lose their lives. That's a lot of families who are yes. forever affected by that. You talked about broadening the range of experiences people had during World War II when you spoke with Jeremy Goodwin in 2021 about the second book in your trilogy, Inferno Island. Is that something that readers can also expect with this final volume? Yeah, I mean, once again, the, the, the format is exactly the same. It, 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 I hope to just sort of put you into the boots of the soldiers, of both sides, by the way, because I, I use a lot of Japanese sources and try to give you the sense of what this was like for Japanese soldiers who were really facing annihilation, many of them. And these are young men who want to live, you know. So um, I hope to put you in the boots of the average soldier, but also maybe get you into the minds of some of their senior leaders mm -hmm. um, at a very human level. And, and I think that that's also really quite... Um, quite important and quite interesting, I think, no matter what line of work you're in, because we're all interested in leadership on some level and decision making and how you go about doing that and the, the problems you would you would have and how personalities work together and or don't. And, and so you really do see that in this sort of vast human story. So I'm giving you kind of the the, the material, the nuts and bolts logistics of it and, and the strategy of it, but also, you know, it really kind of just boils down to people. And that's really what has, you know, drawn me to history for my entire career mm -hmm. is um, just the study of people. And, and as an American historian, I'm just fascinated by our country and our people. And, and to, to see it all in this context, I mean, this is, you know, an army ultimately of 1.8 million ground soldiers. And that's the third largest army this country has ever sent to, to fight a war. And so I think in that sense, we're all sort of affected by this, even all these years later, whether we whether we realize it day to day or not. Mm -hmm. When it comes to the the research part of it, I mean, I would assume that you came up with the idea to to write this trilogy some time ago. Was there information that you came upon uh, between the time of you know conception 
of the trilogy, and then the writing of this book, particularly when it comes to um, what was happening among the Japanese that made its way into into this third volume? Yeah, most definitely. I mean, it, today really is sort of the capstone of about you know a decade plus of, of research and writing and studying of this. And you know, when I when I came up with this concept. Um, you know, I, I expected primarily to be to be telling the story through the lens of, of the army, but but it ended up being much broader than it, especially on the Japanese side. That uh, one of the really pleasant things uh, for for an historian like me who doesn't speak Japanese or read it mm-hmm. is that is that I found an enormous um, corpus of of material uh, from the Japanese point of view, especially like soldier diaries that have been captured by Americans or Australians. Uh, translated because they could be used for intelligence purposes and they, they were very very valuable in that sense and they've been preserved so that in tandem with a lot of the Japanese records and other uh, maybe post-war Japanese accounts really gives us a pretty nice portrait of what the war was like from their point of view too especially in the Philippines and what what really stands out to me and I think this is worth sort of remembering too because it's a cautionary tale um, most of the Japanese who embark on this war uh, particularly those who end up serving in the Philippines felt that they were liberators that they were liberating people um, you know fellow Asians from white imperialism mm-hmm. um, and then so they get to these spots like the Philippines and they find that they're not welcome um, that, that the population is tend to be pro-American, and of course the Japanese were much harsher, really, than the white imperialists ever had been uh, in terms of their, their conquest mindset and, and their exploitation. And so a lot of the Japanese soldiers became disillusioned and, and, and hateful and, and brutal, and that's partially what leads to the atrocities in Manila. So it's, um, again, a kind of a cautionary tale, but it really gives you the, that kind of human foible that, that you can see at that stage. So in this last literal moment, we started our conversation <laughs> talking about General Douglas MacArthur. Let's return there. Please take us to what MacArthur was doing in the days leading up to the planned formal surrender of the Japanese on September 2nd aboard the USS Missouri. Yeah, so, you know, the, the, the Japanese had commu- communicated their intention of surrendering on August 14th, which we tend to remember as VJ, Victory Over Japan Day. But, of course, that was to, it was like the equivalent of just a handshake business deal but so many things had to be worked out in reality. Uh, and there was a lot of tension those next three weeks. So MacArthur is spending most of his time working out the nuts and bolts details of how the surrender in the Philippines would take place, how the surrender in Japan would take place, what the initial occupation would be like, um, who would be doing what. And MacArthur was very busy for those few weeks. Uh, so there, he has this kind of moment of triumph uh, on the night of VJ Day, uh, that he shares actually with Eichelberger, one of his other key commanders, and they, they enjoy it for a moment because they've been through this long trail, you know, a, a war, three years. But really, most of what he's worrying about is what's next uh, in terms of occupying Japan, right. and uh, and that is, you know, extraordinarily complex. So that was an, it was a really busy time for MacArthur, and I think most historians would agree that one of his finest moments was aboard the USS Missouri during the surrender ceremony. Um, because it's a lot of uplifting rhetoric, and, uh, and it was carried out, the whole thing, with, with a great deal of dignity. 
John C. McManus is author of To the Ends of the Earth, or To the End of the Earth, The U.S. Army and the Downfall of Japan, 1945, and the Curator's Distinguished Professor of U.S. Military History at Missouri S&T. There's a book event tomorrow, that's Wednesday evening, where John McManus will talk about his book. It's at the Ethical Society of St. Louis on Clayton Road. The event begins at 7 o'clock. Thank you for joining us, John. Thanks, Elaine. I appreciate it. Today's episode was produced by Alex Hoyer. Audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dork. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Our podcast proudly supports St. Louis artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com.